Hello and welcome to A Study in Granada, a bi-weekly podcast where I, Mike Knoll, a fan but not expert of the Sherlock Holmes lore, have enticed my friend Jackson Eflin into watching the 1985 Granada television series starring Jeremy Brett and David Burke, and we read the stories and we talk about it. Jackson, hello. Hi, and uh, this is unfortunately the episode where Sherlock dies. This is the end of our podcast. Sorry, guys. We seem very cheery, but this is the last you'll ever hear from us. Yeah. Forever. There's no other way to hear from me. I will vanish into foam, like Aphrodite, but backwards. (laughs) So yeah, this is the final problem, and this episode is a little atypical, so we're just going to breeze through the summary, because it's more interesting to talk about it as a story than the individual parts of the story. We'll dip into stuff, but... A great deal of this one is kind of... In the story, it's kind of a travel log. It's just Watson doing exposition of their vacation they take, a journey across the continent. And there's not a lot that happens in the episode. Similarly, there's a number of scenes of them just kind of like hiking. Like, you know that one chapter from Lord of the Rings where it's mostly just like walking and looking at scenery and then a few important things happen? That was just a detour. A shortcut. Shortcut to what? The mushrooms! It's kind of like that. Before we get to that, though, Jackson, I mean, this is the final problem. The ostensible death of Sherlock Holmes, although at this point it's pretty much known just by osmosis that Sherlock Holmes died and came back. So this story was first published in The Strand magazine in 1893, and Doyle had by this point become tired of Sherlock Holmes. The idea was he had started doing this as a way to make money to fund his writing novels with ideas and politics and da-da-da-da-da, but no one really cared about those. Everybody just wanted to talk about Sherlock Holmes. So he wrote The Final Problem, and it appeared in The Strand Magazine on December, in December, 1893. To quote this BBC.com article I found, Conan Doyle himself seemed a little less emotional in private. In quotes, killed Holmes, he wrote in his diary. He later said of his famous character, I have had so much an overdose of him that I feel towards him as I do towards pâté de foie gras, of which I once ate too much that the name of it gives me a sickly feeling to this day. (laughs) After the final problem aired, more than 20,000 Strand readers canceled their subscriptions. Wow. The magazine barely survived. Its staff referred to Holmes' death as the dreadful event. (laughs) There's a common folklore and urban legend about this that, like... There was a parade, like a march of hundreds, maybe thousands of people wearing black armbands that marched up and down in front of the Strand magazine, like in mourning. Now, looking into this, there's no contemporary evidence. No one reported on it at the time. It's kind of believed that Adrian Conan Doyle, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's son, kind of made it up to juice the legend a little bit, make it a little spicier, but... You'll hear the story that this happened, and apparently no one's been able to find like concrete proof that it did happen, but it is part of the legend and mythos of the final problem. I'm kind of okay with believing that it did happen, because whenever there's no proof that a thing was or was not true, I always go for what makes for a better story. Yeah, and I think that I want you to remember that, because I have a point coming up from the story that kind of ties into that. Hmm, and cool. We'll get to it, and I, probably quickly, because it does happen at the beginning of the story. That's... Most of the backstory I have for you on this cultural phenomenon at the time of the death of Sherlock Holmes. Right. But I mean, it is comparable to like big deaths on TV at this Mm -hmm. point. Like it's comparable to the Red Wedding in terms of just like things that everyone knows and cares about. Yeah, I mean, I I would love to have seen the 
reaction videos on YouTube that people posted themselves reading the final problem. The story kind of lets you know from the start, so I can see how it would be, um, how it kind of, it's like, it opens with Sherlock Holmes is gone and ends with, yep, he's gone, and there's no, like, remedial for that. So I imagine it wouldn't be the biggest blow, but... For me, there was still kind of the weight of it, in the episode at least, and maybe because, as we've mentioned many, many, many times, this is David Burke's last episode as Watson. So there was like a finality, I guess no pun intended, to Mm. it. Like the idea of, this was the last I was going to see of my favorite Watson. And so I did feel kind of sad watching this one. And I I like that in a way, because it gives the final problem the weight that Conan Doyle wanted, just for an an entirely different reason. Right. And they went all out with this episode. They have a new theme music. They have different opening credits style, kind of like a invitation to a funeral with the, um, I guess, stationary design and a single white flower, that kind of thing. It's very well done. Let's go ahead and get through the synopsis, and then we can talk about the theme song and all that, because I do want to touch on that a little bit. For sure. Uh, so... We start with Sherlock Holmes being chased through the gritty streets of London by various assailants, just as Dr. Watson is returning to Baker Street. Watson hears Holmes knocking at the window to avoid Moriarty's men. As Watson draws the blinds, Holmes updates Watson on his adventures. He left London suddenly some months ago because the French authorities, deeply upset by the disappearance of the Mona Lisa, had called him for help. Holmes found the fingerprints of Mendoza, one of Moriarty's henchmen. With the Mona Lisa vanished, the professor could sell copies to rich and gullible art lovers who took them for the original. To prompt Mendoza to take the original out of its hiding place, Holmes asked the police to announce the thief's impending arrest. Mendoza, caught with the stolen masterpiece, Moriarty rages for his copies are now worthless. He comes to Baker Street and urges Holmes to withdraw on pain of being trodden underfoot, but the sleuth remains steadfast. While they wait for Scotland Yard to arrest Moriarty and his gang, Holmes and Watson seek refuge on the continent. But despite the utmost secrecy surrounding their flight, Holmes soon notices Moriarty following them. In Switzerland, several suspicious incidents prove that someone wants them dead. While they make their way towards the Reichenbach Falls, a messenger brings Watson a letter that a sick woman in the hotel is asking for an English doctor. But upon his arrival at the hotel, Watson understands the letter is a trap sent by Moriarty. At this very moment, Holmes and the professor are facing off. Watson rushes towards the falls but finds only his friend's walking stick and a farewell note. He infers from these clues that, after a dreadful fight, Holmes and Moriarty both fell over the falls. Back at Baker Street, the morning doctor sadly tells us that he is about to write the last adventure of his gifted friend, Mr. Sherlock Holmes, the best and wisest man he has ever known. Also, quickly, listeners, you're going to hear some weird popping noises while I'm talking, probably. My radiator is just making a lot of noise, and it's going to be a pain to edit it out every time, so I apologize, but... It's just a thing. Mm-hmm. So let's open with the theme song, as most shows do, uh, that you touched on. Yes. Um, we've never really played the theme song. So if anybody who who's listening along that isn't also watching the show, we're going to go ahead and put the original, like the actual song in here for you. And then after that, we're going to play the one for this episode. So you can kind of hear what we're talking about. So here's the original.
and here's the new updated version. I kind of wish they had stuck more with the screeches there at the beginning, like the wrong notes sound almost. Mm. It's more like they did a different arrangement and I would have liked more of just like somebody playing it badly. Right. But the way they arrange it does create the sense of danger. Mm-hmm. The normal version is still kind of in that minor key that gives it a like sense of foreboding, but here it escalates to like, you could play this over a tense action scene and it would fit perfectly. Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, I still like it. I think... I, just, I like that immediately we know something is wrong from the theme song. Right. And if you didn't know what was going to happen and you tuned into this, you'd be like, what's going on? And it would be like, a, like imagine watching this episode having no knowledge that like Sherlock dies and comes back. I think that it does a great job of already disconcerting people. Mm-hmm. And I draw it likely to there's an issue of Batman. It's from the New 52 and just as Scott Snyder was starting to write it and there's a swore Batman ends up in this like underground place and there's a well that's the only thing he can drink out of but he knows that it's got like psychedelics laced in it and Ooh. as you're reading the comic the panels start to get more jagged and actually at one point you have to turn it sideways in the like to read it and then you have to turn it again upside down so eventually you're reading this book upside down and it's like gives you this feeling of like you're like you're getting really disconcerted. It gives it such a great uh, feel, and I feel like that's what this theme song does. Is like from the get go, this is something is wrong, and you're like, this isn't the theme song. What's going on? I don't. This is like ugh, this doesn't sound good. And then immediately it cuts to Sherlock Holmes being chased through the streets of London. Uh, there's a similar thing on Penny Dreadful for the last episode. They switch from their like normal instrumental opening to somebody singing a. English folk song, like, very hauntingly across the moors. And I'm like, what is this? I'm like, wait, oh no, it's going to end here? No. I need to catch up on Penny Dreadful. You could do that. Um, (laughs) (laughs) They also have a variation on the theme when they're, like, hiking through Switzerland. And it's, like, a little bit more upbeat and airy and drifting and echoing, which kind of has the same, like, mountains vibe. And I'm a huge sucker for a good, like, variation on a leitmotif thing, so this is a really good version sure. of that. There's also some variation in the story, because to my knowledge, I know definitely this happens in The Crooked Man, but not often does Holmes show up at Watson's house. Typically, Watson drops in to visit Holmes, and is then sucked into a case. And in this one, Holmes shows up at Watson's house, like, I need you to come with me. And it's, it's just, again, an, a variation on the norm. That kind of throws us off of the usual beats of, oh, hello, Watson. Welcome back. This is the case I'm working on. Would you like to come join me? It's now more, hey, Watson, I'm hiding out here. Don't follow me. Of course I'm following you. I'm Watson. It's a very good impression. Thank you. I went to Juilliard. There's also some other reversal stuff. So they're escaping on the train and being hounded every step and Watson's basically going, Good heavens, anybody would think that we were the criminals. Because of how, like, instead of them chasing the criminal down i don't know i don't know how i feel about that I, I it seems like an odd sentence to throw in without 
like follow through. Like, I don't know. It feels like a sentence that you would say and then follow with some kind of thematic, like they have to break into some places to hide or something like, like them doing something that could be vaguely criminal. I don't know. I, I, I'm not articulating my point well. No, I get you. The hero saying it's one would almost think we're the criminals and then no follow through of them like being seen as criminals or perceived as criminals by like mm-hmm. the general public public by the general public it seems right. weird i expected there to be some kind of follow-through on that line and then there just wasn't it would definitely have created a little more drama and gravitas to the episode if maybe a few more of moriarty's men had slipped the net because while they're on the continent holmes gets a telegraph from mycroft that basically the entire moriarty gang except for professor moriarty has been caught i'm kind of okay with how they handled that though i like that it's all off screen because it lets us imagine what it would be i and i agree i like it off screen i'm saying that i think that if some more of his gang had managed to slip the net, then we could have had them being hounded more. And then the right. one would almost think we're the criminals would work better, maybe. Like, it could be mm-hmm. a bigger theme. It might let them have to, like, do some, like, burglary or, or theft to just kind of get around without being noticed or whatnot. Yeah, or just they're more on the run than yeah. they are. Like, this is just kind of a trip they're taking to keep out of the way and you know, whatever, and maybe keep a, a step ahead of Moriarty for as long as they can. But I, no, at no point do I feel like they're being chased. Right. There is kind of a vague implication when various things happen to them, but like the opening salvos of the story with Holmes running through the streets are very high tension. And then when we get to Switzerland, it's just kind of so sedate, pleasant. There's a thing I want to talk about since we're kind of still at the beginning from the story, and that is that the story opens with Watson saying, basically, you know what, I never intended to write this story. I was just going to leave it at the Naval Treaty, but Professor Moriarty's brother, Colonel James Moriarty, which they share the same name. It's Professor James Moriarty and his brother, Colonel James Moriarty. And I've looked this That's up to very be very sh- confusing. I looked this up to be sure because I know that it's James Moriarty, and I didn't know if maybe... It wasn't to begin with, and people have conflated, oh, his brother's name was James, we'll just call him Professor James Moriarty. But in the next story, The Empty House, it is, I guess they say he's James Moriarty. So, two brothers, both named James. Huh. But he says, you know, the brother, Colonel James Moriarty, has been writing some stuff, trying to be like, no, my brother wasn't all that, you know, blah, blah, blah. This this is all slander and lies. Watson says the quote, only I know the absolute truth of these events. Mm. And looking through it this time, he really doesn't. Everything that he learns is the story Holmes told him at the beginning, and then the letter Holmes leaves him at the end. Everything else is like, oh yeah, this, there were some boulders that fell, and maybe it was Moriarty, and like we were fleeing, and then we saw a train that was following us at one point. Like Watson's not ever privy to conversations or context. It's always what Holmes has told him, or the letter that Holmes left him. And mm-hmm. I bring it up just because I think that's an interesting, and it goes with what you were saying about like the legend the mythos, the not letting the facts get in the way of a good story. And I'm not accusing Watson of anything. I just think that like, it's an interesting thing to look at this story with only I know the absolute truth. And really all he has is Holmes' side. Right. Which fits with the whole idea of Watson being a somewhat unreliable narrator, mm-hmm. um, which I think is an interesting read that doesn't have to be canon for the stories to be interesting, but it does allow you to complicate the narrative if you want to take that route for retellings or interpretations or whatever i think it makes the final problem a slightly more interesting story to dig into as you're saying with the idea of all we have is holmes's perspective and again i'm not suggesting well maybe professor moriarty was a good guy and holmes was the villain all along it's an interesting note to keep in mind when reading this story that all the information we have 
was imparted by Holmes verbally or in a letter, and then everything else that Watson observed. But really all he saw were things that then slotted into Holmes's narrative without any kind of follow-through or checkup or fact-checking or anything like that. And the episode doesn't quite follow that because when the train sure. is chasing, we actually see Moriarty leaning out the window mm-hmm. uh, with his villain glare. We see various scenes as well, which I guess, although I guess most of those scenes are from Holmes's retellings and stuff. But but even then, yeah. the Moriarty train, we don't know. Like We just see him on the train following them. Yeah, We see him at the train station trying to get the train or catch them. We see him on his own train. And then Watson sees him heading towards the falls as he goes back to the inn to help the pregnant English woman. Right. But like Watson never actually sees Moriarty doing anything. Right. Although I think that reading also kind of leads into the... So, spoilers, everybody. Uh, Holmes fakes his death and comes back later. Um, so, I think this leads into, into complications with maybe Holmes was pre- preparing that and so he laid this groundwork here so that he wouldn't be followed because he's assumed dead. So... In the next one, The Adventure of the Empty House, Holmes does go over the cliffs. Wrong. It's just he like manages to catch himself on a ledge or something. Wrong. Mm-hmm. And realizes that there is actually one more member of Moriarty's gang, the man who was shooting at them on the mountainside. And he knew that if he was going to catch this guy or to basically to keep Watson safe and all that, he was going to disappear for a while. Mm-hmm. I don't think that he was planning to fake his own death. But again, that's just Holmes's word that right. that was the plan. And before I forget, I just want to implore everybody to read uh, The Mandela of Sherlock Holmes, which tells the story of Holmes's time playing dead in Tibet and mm. other parts of the Himalayas. And it's very good and goes buck wild at the end. And there's a wizard duel. So, yeah, yeah. Are you anyway, sure you weren't just reading Deathly Hallows? I'm not sure, honestly. Anyway, um, we should focus on the episode before all this happens we get a interlude where holmes is tracking down the mona lisa that was stolen in the story we open watson says that holmes had been occupied in france or doing some work for the french government and so this episode takes some liberties with that yeah and it's a decent story the mona lisa has been stolen holmes figures out that it's so that they can make copies and sell them decent enough plot it wraps up pretty fast. Gives us some butts. Yeah, there's there's butts and some side boob. You know, they're artists. They have to have a naked lady at all times so they can just constantly draw her. It's weird. It's not like yeah. bad. It's just like, oh, right. It's She's just there. I'm kind of torn on this scene. As you've written here, Parisian diversions. Mm-hmm. Because while I like it, it is like 15 minutes. Right. And doesn't really advance the plot beyond just showing why Moriarty would be annoyed at Holmes. Yeah. On the other hand, though, if we didn't have that, it would have been 15 more minutes of, like, scenery and Holmes and Watson walking around. So at least something is, like, happening here. Mm -hmm. And we do have that bit where I don't think Holmes would have been able to know about this. It's just for the episode Mm -hmm. that Moriarty is trying to sell a fake painting to some guy with, I guess, Dorian Gray assisting him. And then he finds out that it's a fake and gets, like, incredibly angry. And the actor does a great job with that. Eric Porter's barely controlled fury about finding out that Holmes has foiled his plans is really well done. And it comes through in a very subtle way, and I like that. I mentioned Dorian Gray. Moriarty employs a young art expert who is never named and uh, is this pretty redheaded guy in a light suit, which is how Dorian Gray is usually depicted. And... I choose to believe that they're just bringing that character in. Well, actually, in the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen movie, Dorian Gray does work for Professor Moriarty. You see? Yeah, so let's talk about Moriarty a little bit. Sure. 
I don't care for this one. Mm. This guy. Uh, Eric Porter? Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's okay. Right. I think that he seems more like, like a mob boss than a crime mm. lord. It's a subtle difference. For me, Moriarty is intellectual, and he is the mastermind. And this guy seems a little bit more of the... Like, the difference between the guy who owns the casino and a pit boss. Right. Moriarty is more in the trenches, this one seems like, than what I imagine. As the way that Holmes describes him and the way that Moriarty is kind of set up, I imagine somebody who sits in their offices. They are a professor of mathematics, I believe. Yeah. From their office at Cambridge, they send notes to the people to do this or that. And this Moriarty seems much more like deals with the people that work for him and less like I have people who deal with them. Which I get it. It's a way to condense scenes so we see what's happening with him. But Eric Porter doesn't give him that sense of like charisma that makes him fearful, I guess. I've talked a decent amount of shade on this podcast about the Robert Downey Jr., adaptations which I, I do like them i think this is my preferred holmes adaptation text jared harris is a great moriarty he stays very far away unless he has to when he's on the scene it is not like with other like he is there everybody it's almost like the president when he shows up everyone else is cleared out pretty much mm-hmm. and, but he's still sinister and violent when he needs to be mm-hmm I don't know. He gives it the right gravitas, I think. I think it's one of the perils of the way that the Granada series sets things up. It introduces Moriarty and then gets rid of him the next episode instead of letting him be the spider for a season or so. Right. And then, you know, I like Andrew Scott, but I it's probably my least favorite Moriarty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, same. The false Moriarty. That's the one from the BBC Sherlock, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm not big on him. He doesn't feel threatening. He just sort of feels... He's the Joker. Yeah. He's not a mastermind. He's the Joker. Uh, he's less, what's his bucket? Uh, mm-hmm. Less Lex Luthor and more Jared Leto Joker. And it doesn't work. But back to this show. There's an interesting exchange that I think the show doesn't handle super well. I, I hold this up as um, a favorite of mine. And I'm, I'll read it because they um, abridge it in the show. And, mm. and in the Robert Downey Jr. movie, which I think they nail this exchange, even though they do shorten it. This is when Moriarty barges into Baker Street and has a confrontation with Holmes directly. And while they do bungle some of the exchanges, it is a really good scene. The actors play off each other really well, and the and they deliver their lines impressively, even if the lines are organized poorly. So this one is Moriarty has come to see Holmes and basically has told him, like, here you are, here I am. There's a great line where he says, All that I have to say has already crossed your mind. Impossible, my answer has already crossed yours. And, like, that's a great one. If both, like, I'm not going to assault your intelligence. Like, we've both played out this conversation already in our minds. That's the thing I love from the RDJ Sherlock one, where they're, it's like they're having a telepathic conversation. Like, their voiceovers start arguing with each other, and it's amazing. That's that's at the end, though, I think, with the fist fight, yeah. right? Okay. Right, but it's still a good yeah, yeah. scene. So Moriarty finally says, Well, well, said he at last. It seems a pity, but I have done what I could. I know every move of your game. You can do nothing before Monday. It has been a duel between you and me, Mr. Holmes. You hope to place me in the dock. I tell you that I will never stand in the dock. You hope to beat me. I tell you that you will never beat me. If you are clever enough to bring destruction upon me, rest assured that I shall do as much to you. You have paid me several compliments, Mr. Moriarty, said I. Let me pay you one in return when I say that if I were assured of the former eventuality, I would, in the interest of the public, cheerfully accept the latter. I can promise you one, but not the other, he snarled, and so turned his rounded back upon me. 
and went peering and blinking out of the room. This is a duel between you and me, Mr. Holmes. You hope to place me in the dock. You hope to beat me. If you are clever enough to bring destruction on me, rest assured, I shall do as much for you. You have paid me several compliments, Mr. Moriarty. Let me pay you one in return when I say that if I were assured of the former eventuality, I would, in the interests of the public, cheerfully accept the latter. I can promise you the one, but not the other. I don't know. I love that bit of like this final set off of like, if you don't get out of my way, I will kill you. And he's like, great. If, if I can take you down with me, I'll do it. And it's just such a good line being drawn in the sand. And it's still done in that like Victorian politeness mm-hmm. thing that reinforces the idea of these characters as like posh, upper class folk. I have the honor to be your obedient servant, A. Dotber. Exactly. I don't like the spin that they put on it, their take. It, it seems like Brett kind of overdoes it, in my opinion. Like, Jeremy Brett's always a little extra with, with his Holmes lines, as we've talked about before. And usually I love it. I think it adds something to it. Like, the stormy petrol of crime is a great one. The way he says, Edridges, is great. <laughs> like, uh, but this one, I think it's the way he really, really puts the emphasis on cheerfully. That just doesn't sit well with me. Yeah, I get you. The line is already extra enough without the... Granada spin, mm-hmm. um, which is uh, my fa- my favorite sex position. Um, D- uh, come on, <laughs> no, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> Jackson, my grandma listens to this. Oh yeah, you cut that bit. You know, as you do. I do like the way that Game of Shadows does this. Rest assured, if you attempt to bring destruction down upon me. I shall do the same to you. My respect for you, Mr. Holmes, is the only reason you're still alive. You've paid me several compliments. Let me pay you one in return when I said if I were assured of the former eventuality, I would cheerfully accept the latter. One bit of extra that I do appreciate from Jeremy Brett is him walking through the Louvre, uh, talking about... (laughs) How do you pronounce it? Louvre. Jerry Brett walking through the Louvre. It is a history lesson in stone. It's a very good bit. Sure. Uh, yeah, I, I love the way Jeremy Brett says things. Like I said, I think because I like that quote so much, I just there's something about the way he does it that I, I just don't care for as much, but it's not bad. Sure. Do we have anything else to say about Moriarty? I do like that he's a phrenologist. That's a good like uh, way to show that he's both an intellectual but also evil. Yeah. For those who don't know about phrenology, it was this idea that like, the shape of your head said something about your intelligence, which in itself is kind of like, mm, mm. but it was used to show that like black people were less intelligent because their heads were shaped differently. And that was used to justify colonialism and genocide. So it's a really shitty branch of science that I'm glad we're mostly moving away from, but it's making a comeback, I guess. So that's great. I know that in most later adaptations, he is a professor of mathematics and i think that he is he in this or is he a professor of phrenology um i think it's like phrenology just comes up as like a thing he knows about he like mentions that sherlock holmes like skull is less big than he thought it was gonna be <laughs> yeah he, i'm pretty sure he's a professor of mathematics yeah there came a point where that became the thing for him but i don't know if that was at this point 
So some of the things that we take as Sherlock Holmes canon has come about from adaptations and this and that and other things. Yeah, I think it mentioned somewhere in here that he wrote a treatise on the binomial theorem. Oh, there you go. Which is basically just like algebra stuff. That's what he should have just called it. Wrote a treatise on algebra stuff. Yes, same. There's a good scene in the episode. All gang safely secured. Only Mariati escaped the net. Signed, Mycroft. He's given them the slip. I think it would be better if you were to return to England, Watson. Why? You will find me a very dangerous companion now. Moriarty will devote all his energies to taking his revenge upon me. But if I have a companion... Would you be rid of me? No. Except for the reasons I've given. We've been in tight places before together. Never as tight as this one. I'm not leaving you, Holmes. Not unless you order me to go. And the way that Brett and Burke do this scene, I wonder if this was them, like, kind of saying goodbye as actors. Because it reads very much as a goodbye. Even though, like, Watson stays on. Yeah. Knowing that David Burke leaves after this one, there's just this moment there that feels, like, very powerful. Like, the the two actors are trying to say something. And David Burke knew that he was leaving. It wasn't, like, just a spontaneous thing. He was working on trying to find his replacement as he was, like, wrapping up. Yeah, so we haven't covered this in episode. Jackson and I have talked about it, but um, David Burke actually left the Granada series because he was offered a spot on the Royal Shakespeare Company in London, where his wife was also on the cast. And they decided that this was probably the best call for their very young son. So, you know, David wasn't off on shoots all the time. They would be together in one location. And so he left for his family, which, as far as reasons to leave go, one of the good ones. Yeah. It wasn't like a scandal or a death. It was just like, hey, I want to make sure my kid has the best Mm -hmm. chance. And I... We'll always be there for that. And according to the stuff that I've read, he actually put forward Edward Hardwick as his successor. Mm-hmm. So I guess I have to give him some credit if he was chosen by Watson. Right. To pretend to be Watson. Um, and then they flee to Switzerland and wander around New Zealand for a bit. Uh, sure. I don't think that's how geography works, but sure. That's, I'm pretty sure that New Zealand is actually just every mountain ever in a yeah. in a British written production. There's this one gorgeous shot where they're in Switzerland at their hotel and Burke like steps out of the window or into his window and you see the front of this like very beautiful hotel with these rolling green hills behind it. And it like even for an 80s TV show, it was a very beautiful shot. Right. I, know, I just like some of the, the scenery. They do a good job of capturing. I assume it was probably like on location or something or at least close enough to it mm-hmm. just because of how real it feels. Yeah. I bet it was more like Germany or somewhere closer because I think, I don't know, I think Switzerland's farther away than Germany. It still holds up as like really good shots even now. Mountains don't age. The film quality isn't as good, but like the scene, the way that it's lit and the composition of the scene holds up. They do a really good job of having the camera a little bit further back than you might normally so that you have not only the characters interacting, but also... Like the town behind them and the mountains in the background with the clouds drifting over. And the idea that, I mean, it's Watson. It's like there's, you don't see anyone on the hills or anything. It's this very, this building covered in like flowers and vines and the hills behind it. And then just Watson very clearly standing on this like very short balcony outside, just looking out over, I guess, over the camera because the camera's on him. Right. We've talked about the tone 
and Granada before and how they managed to nail like Speckled Band or um, Crooked Man or this season Copper Beaches, all of those. And I feel like this one has a lot of tones. Like when they're in London, it's very, there's a lot of smoke and fog obscuring things. Like when Holmes is running for his life, he comes out of the smoke and fog. Like we don't see Mm. him at first. And then once they get out into the countryside, it's very bright and cheery. I really like that. I think that they played with a lot of different tones on this one. And it is bright and cheery at first, but then as they get further and further towards Holmes's inevitable fate, the clouds start rolling in. Mm-hmm. It might be that just like happen to be filming on a cloudy day, but there's less direct light during that final problem. Speaking of tone, I like Burke, I think, throughout the whole thing does a good job of the monologues, because there are several mm. expository monologues of Watson kind of narrating their adventure. And his tone throughout is very subdued. Like, usually we get kind of a... When we've had monologues before, he started with, like, a brisk, kind of like, oh, off on an adventure. And then by the end, it's a little bit more somber because usually someone's died or someone's fortunes are ruined or something like that. And this one, the whole time, he's very somber and, like, subdued. It definitely feels like a man who's writing about a very painful experience. What do you think about the the very end where he looks directly at the camera to give the closing bit of it? That was a little goofy to me, but I'm not super bothered because it's David Burke's last time, and if there's ever a time to be a little bit dramatic with your farewell, it's on your last episode. Sure. Of a thing that you clearly love. Oh, yeah. And I mean, these are all technically him telling the story to us, so that makes sense for what they're doing. Part of me just thinks it was kind of hokey, but also, like you say, I'm willing to let it go because this is the last we'll see of David Burke, and also it does give it like a finite note this feels like it's finished because suddenly watson is now looking at us like that's all i'm done writing the stories i'll just goodbye and like i think the, the fact that it is at the end makes it okay like if it was all through the episode it might be a little bit weird since we haven't done that for the whole series mm-hmm. but because it is at this very like last scene of the movie or last scene of the show I'm, I'm down with it it's actually just about six minutes of watson talking to us about what he wants to name the episode while violin music <laughs> plays in the background gods i like that it scrolls over like Holmes stuff, like his pipe, yeah, the, his matches, his derringer, etc. But it doesn't show us a picture of Irena Adler, and I'm sad about that. I do like that over the credits, we get a series of the Sydney Paget woodcuttings, like from the, the series, not just this one episode. Because as normally they play those over the credits, that episode's the story, they would show some of the woodcuttings from that story. And this one, it, it's more of like the career. And I, I think that gives it a good also final... Note, even though everyone pretty much knows next season, he's back. Right. I like that they committed to this is it. Even though they knew everyone knew, they didn't try to trick you into believing that this was actually the end, but they played it as if it was, just in general. Like, this was a goodbye in a way, even though everyone knew they were coming back. Everyone knows it's not the last story. Mm-hmm. They did kind of change the name of the series after that. It goes from The Adventure of Sherlock Holmes to The Return, so... This conclusive feeling works kind of well. It's kind of like how with the last, the 10th Doctor episodes, you have like all these returns of other characters to kind of get a final goodbye to... The universe will sing you to your sleep. This song is ending, but the story never ends. Exactly. Ah, uh, right in the Yeah, we'll talk, we'll touch briefly after, you know, when we're done here and we've done, we finished Must Clash and all that, we'll touch on the name changes from series to series. Mm, Sure. While this episode has some really good parts, it kind of shows its age as a 
80s TV show when Holmes and Moriarty are going over the falls, the um, <laughs> there's two different effects, neither of which work super well. One has them like falling very slowly, and the the wire corrections aren't all they could be, I'll say. Then there's a bit where they stop falling in slow motion, and two mannequins dressed like Holmes and Moriarty sort of plop onto the rocks. Yeah, the and on top of that, the fight choreography is the, the usual uh, Granada style. Which is odd, because at the very beginning, there's actually a pretty decent fight scene. Yeah. Yeah, I wrote my notes. That fight is good. You and I talked briefly about this about a week or so ago, and I, I posited maybe they were worried Eric Porter might get hurt, because he's not a young which man. I get. No. And, and they had close-ups of the two fighting, which I appreciate. Mm-hmm. They weren't just like stunt doubles in the distance. Yeah. And so my theory is maybe, because it looks like they were, if not at the top of a big waterfall, like it looked like there was a decent drop behind them. Yeah. My theory is maybe they were just like, we have to be really careful. Nobody actually topples over. Right. That would be awkward. Because then it really would have been the final problem. You don't really come back from that as a show. Or as Jeremy Brett. (laughs) Yeah, or as Jeremy Brett. National treasure Jeremy Brett. R.I.P. Oh, also, we do have that really great bit where, so in the story, Watson comes back to find... Right. (laughs) Watson Watson comes back to find this cigarette case with a note to him saying it's really... Really moving lines they mostly recreate uh, for the show. Mm-hmm. And he talks about how he figures out what happened using Sherlock Holmes' own method. Let me figure out where that line is. Um, then I began to think of Holmes' own methods and to try to practice them in reading this tragedy. Which, in the story, he like looks carefully at the footprints and uh, mm-hmm. uh, the mud and how the ferns are moved. Here, in the episode, it's just... I stood for a minute or two to collect myself, but I was dazed the horror of the thing. And then I began to think of Holmes's own methods and to try to practice them. Oh! Oh! I began to practice Holmes's own methods, shouting at a waterfall. Yeah, in my notes I wrote down Holmes's own methods and then all caps yelling into waterfalls because immediately <laughs> after the Oliver monologue says, you know, I put him into practice or whatever, he turns around and just starts yelling Holmes into the waterfall. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> I love that as much as we talk about how useful Watson is and how good at this, like Watson is good and useful and all that. I do love that a lot of times he's still kind of a doofus. Mm-hmm. This, the, um, the solitary cyclist, where he talks about how he found the only hiding spot he could, which is behind a very flimsy pile of sticks in which he's standing straight up. He's not crouching. He's, not, he's just standing like normal behind this pile of sticks that comes up to like his chin. <laughs> and, like that's his hiding spot. And like just so many times where Watson is trying so hard, but also just is really kind of a doofus. Mm-hmm. I wrote another one down from this episode. Oh, where... Uh, they're at the train station, and Moriarty is coming up on his fast train, and Holmes is like, quickly, let's hide. So they crouch behind a pile of luggage, where they'd still be clearly visible from the angle that Moriarty's train is at, mm-hmm. but this pile of luggage is in front of a building <laughs> with an open door. Right. <laughs> they crouch behind a pile of luggage where they pro- pretty easily could be seen instead of just ducking into a building. <laughs> Which has windows. You can look through the windows and have better cover. While this episode is... Emotionally evocative, has some good scenes. There's also some bits that are kind of a bit hokey, a bit showing of their age. Uh, all right, so do you have any little monographs 
Not really. I mean, I guess good to see Mrs. Hudson. That was cool. I have one that we haven't touched on. That when Watson goes back to help the non-existent pregnant woman, the person who delivered the message says like, oh yeah, the hotel owner suggested that I be Mr. Holmes' guide. And Holmes says that that's a great idea. And later, Holmes is like, oh yeah, I knew that, that this was all a trap. I like that when the guide just like cuts and runs later, Holmes turns around and gives this like, hey! kind of yell. And so if we take Holmes at his word that he knew it was a trap, I love the idea that this was just more of like a like professional anger. Like, come on! <laughs> like, all he did was just immediately turn and run away, not like, did he even go the whole way? Come on! Like, <laughs> so unprofessional. And I just love that idea that Holmes is like, if you're going to lead me to my death, at least, like, pay me the respect of not just, like, running away immediately. I want my death to be witnessed by other people. Yeah, or just, like, I don't know, who trained you to be a double agent? <laughs> it made me kind of laugh, that scene, because it's like, if Holmes knew that this was some kind of trap, then he wasn't like, hey, come on, what the hell? It was more just like, what are you doing? I, like, You're making it too obvious. Yeah, that's better. That's a better, like... All right, well, if that's it for monographs, we have Must Clash to get to. Yes. And you have some good contenders here. Yeah, I think so. The Louvre director is really good. And his is more of an overall look, being a little short, a fairly round gentleman, mostly bald with just like a ludicrous mustache. It's like a pencil, but a novelty pencil that's like hyper thick. To me, it looks more like somebody took like a bunch of paintbrush bristles and tied them very tightly in the middle. So the ends are kind of fanning out, but the middle's very oh, thin. Yes. With like a tiny <laughs> bit of a, of a beard at the bottom. Oh, yeah. He has like a little, little crappy soul patch. Yeah. I think it's either him or the artist who draws the fake Mona Lisa's. I think they're the strongest contenders. And for me, I think it's the Louvre, op, the Louvre director. This guy's... The, yeah. the artist has a very standard gray kind of beard. Although, I don't know. It looks like his sideburns go under the beard and connect. Do they? Mm. He's got some stuff going on, but it's not particularly outrageous. It's just a lot of facial hair. And I'm yeah. more about quality than quantity. Fair enough. So the Louvre director is the winner of the final problem? I think so, yeah. All right. So that means he goes up against the good boy, Mr. Melos, from The Greek Interpreter. I think I might have to give it to uh, the director of the Louvre. I'm thinking so as well. Like, Mr. Melos has a very interesting and kind of wild beard and mustache combo. But there is something about the director where the mustache and his whole, like his whole body adds to the effect of the mustache and the mustache kind of caps the whole effect of his person. Like mm -hmm. it's a weird holistic impression I get with this mustache as opposed to Mr. Melas. For me, it's kind of the, the way that the mustache looks like it's balancing on top of the beard. Like, you know those uh, stones in the desert in the southwest where there's, like, some that are wider than the ones beneath them? Yeah. And it's just, it's kind of this, it looks like they should fall over, but it doesn't? His mustache is like that. All right. Well, in a 11th hour knockout, the Louvre director takes season two of Must Clash. A moment of silence for Mr. Melas. That's long enough. All right, then there's one last piece of business that I need to attend to, Jackson, and that is mm. that for about 13 episodes, I've been referring to you as a neophyte, and I think that we can officially dispense with that and upgrade you to the rank of apprentice. 
Oh, splendid. I think that you have put in the work and the hours that you're no longer a neophyte. You have definite opinions and knowledge about Holmes that you're no longer... Yes. You still have a long way to go before you get to my level, but... But I'm no longer a yearling. Yeah, you're... You're... you're Padawan? That is case closed on the final problem, then, I believe. And that's uh, the end of season two. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you for sticking with us through thick and thin, through all our fads and fancies, through <laughs> another reference. Um, Jackson, do you have anything you want to plug? Um, yep. As always, I'm part of Gratuitous Pausing. We are a film podcast that is looking at films right now. We're recording this kind of far out. I'm not quite sure where we're going to be. I think Mike and I, by, by now, have both been on an episode yeah. of uh, Sherlocktober. And you can find that in the link below, because we recorded that really recently, so we're not sure where it's up yet. Mm-hmm. But it will be by the time this episode is out. We <laughs> both talked about our favorite Sherlock Holmes. Z- z- uh, I also am on a podcast called The Equalizers, where friend and previous guest Madison Jones take films that never got sequels or prequels, either because they're very good and didn't need one, or they're very bad and they don't deserve one, and we give them to them. You can find us everywhere online at The Equalizers, and we spell it E-Q-U-E-L-I-Z-E-R-S, like in sequel. So next time, we open Season 3 as we climb out of the abyss that is Reichenbach Falls. We're rare to meet thy go. And it seems to me you lived your life like a Watson. Hunger. Romanos. Burned out long before. <laughs>